Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 119, Sing We the Virgin Mary. Well, thank you for listening in to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. As I mentioned, I'm Chris Date, and uh, I'm thankful that you're along for the ride. I've got an interesting and edifying debate, I think, for you today uh, between an Eastern Orthodox and a Protestant on the topic of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, I'll let that um, debate be introduced in, in, in a few moments, but I just wanted to say a few things. Uh, first of all, for those of you who heard me say a few episodes ago that I had uh, been laid off from Microsoft after 12 years and that I was looking for a new job, um, thank you for any prayers that you've sent my way, well, sent God's way on my behalf anyway. Uh, they've paid off. I did get a job at another company doing software development, and I started uh, this past Monday, and it's going very well. Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I uh, The pay is, is great, and uh, it's a far less stressful environment than it was at Microsoft. So thank you for your prayers, and um, uh, I would just ask you to continue to pray that the uh, th- that I would be able to be productive and that I would be able to perform uh, to the level expected of me, and, and that I'd be able to work as though unto the Lord, uh, which will, of course, also be a good testimony for those people that are there who discover that I'm a believer. Um, also, <clears throat> um, I- I'm still really struggling to find time to do uh, proper podcast episodes that aren't just simply debates. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still going to school. I start second semester Greek at a local college. I'm now um, going to this job where I don't have the luxury of being able to do some ministry-related things during the workday because I'm no longer in an office. I'm in a big open work area. So it's going to be a struggle for me to find time to do anything besides moderate debates. Um, so I hope that you'll stick with the podcast for a while until my... Uh, until my schedule opens up a little bit. I'm not even writing blog articles or doing, uh, you know, preparing for podcast interviews and things like that at Rethinking Hell very much at all anymore right now, Um, which means that those of you who are fans of both podcasts will probably uh, relent the fact that things have died down a little bit there as well. Um, But uh, if you do know anybody that would like to debate any particular topic... um, you know, especially people that are, uh, uh, you know, professors or that have degrees or whatever. I, I don't just want any old Joe off the street to do a debate. Um, but anybody who's got a ministry or has written on a topic or something that you think would make for a good debate opponent in a particular uh, topic, please don't be afraid to uh, shoot me an email at chris at theapologetics.com uh, or you can find me on Facebook. And, uh, and I'd be happy to try to arrange more debates. They really don't take much of my time to prepare for or to record or to produce. Uh, they're really a fantastic way for me to keep some episodes of the Theapologetics the podcast going uh, while my schedule is so hectic. Um, did want to let you know uh, a couple more things before I uh, play today's promo and transition into the debate. Um, one of the things I was able to squeeze time in to do a few weeks ago was a uh, informal debate on Un- Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, uh, opposite Dr. Albert Moeller. Um, he was an absolute gentleman and, and uh, a scholar, and I have the utmost of respect for him. Um, but I think that the what I think is the biblical view of final punishment came out on top. 
and uh, a lot of people have been saying they felt uh, the same way. So if you'd like to listen to that that debate, just look up Unbelievable on Facebook or on uh, on you know Google or Bing or whatever search engine you use, and look for an episode from a few weeks ago between myself and Dr. Moeller. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, also, we I am in the process right now of editing the second Rethinking Hell book. This time, as those of you who have followed the show for a while know that I published uh, with a couple of my friends and uh, compatriots at Rethinking Hell. We published our first book um, last year. It was a, a collection of previously published works from people like John Stott and John Wenham and um, Clark Pinnock and so forth. Well, this time around, we've got all new contributions. Several of them were read, presented at the Rethinking Hell conference in Houston last year, but many others are uh, have not yet been presented, um, and I think that you'll really enjoy the collection. Uh, so be keeping an eye open for that. It should be published in the uh, a little past halfway through this year, and uh, it'll be a festschrift, uh, a collection of essays in honor of Edward Fudge. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be published by Pickwick Publications. And also on the Rethinking Hell conference uh, topic, uh, we've got our second conference planned and registration is open. It's going to be held at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California in uh, mid-June of this year. And I'm, I was honored and blessed to be asked to be one of the plenary speakers. So if you'd like to meet me, not that I'm all that spectacular of a person to meet. Um, I will be speaking at that conference and would love to meet you. If you want more details, if you'd like to register, if you'd like to present as one of the breakout sessions, we need a lot of uh, breakout pr- uh, presenters, then just go to RethinkingHellConference.com and you'll get all the details you need. Well, I've been rambling for a long time now, so I'll, I'll turn things over. Let me, let me first play uh, today's promo, the next promo in my, in my rotation, which is for Ligonier Ministries, the Rethinking, uh, sorry, the Renewing Your Mind podcast with R.C. Sproul. Stay tuned. Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul is next. And our Quorum Deo thought for today. Let me say to you, dear friends, that you may not want Christ. You may not want to be bothered with religious things. But dear friend, you need Christ. You know you're not perfect. You know that you're not holy. And you know that God is holy. And the biggest problem you will ever face in your existence is how to reconcile that problem. And what Christianity is all about is that righteousness has been achieved by somebody else for me and for all who put their faith in Him. God provides what you need. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Sproul and of Ligonier Ministries of the Renewing Your Mind podcast and and so forth. He's had a profound influence on me when it comes to soteriology, the doctrines of grace, Calvinism, so forth, uh, as well as eschatology. Uh, In part, because of him, uh, I am a orthodox or partial preterist, as it sometimes is called. Um, And it's just a fantastic ministry, fantastic uh, podcast, and I encourage you to check it out. Uh, If you want to listen to the Ligonier Renewing Your Mind podcast, you can go to Ligonier.org. That's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.org. And if you click About in the uh, menu across the top, you'll find a welcome letter of sorts and the word Free Podcasts 
is linked to in that paragraph. And if you click on that, a new page will open that will give you access to the Renewing Your Mind podcast um, and several others as well. I think you'll enjoy it. I encourage you to check it out. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's debate. Sing me the Virgin Mary Sing we that matchless one See how the angels attended her When she birthed God's own son When she birthed God's own son As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Saturday, January 24th, 2015, but whenever it is you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning in to another The Apologetics Podcast debate. The recent debates that I've hosted on my show have focused on that all-important topic of Christology, but today we're going to shift gears a little bit and discuss a different topic, one that divides Protestants on the one hand from Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox on the other, the virginity of Mary. Did Mary, the mother of Jesus, remain a virgin even after giving birth to our Lord and forever since? Or did she and her husband Joseph go on after the birth of Jesus to consummate their marriage and have other children? Well, joining me today to represent the Protestant position is Robert Zins, Ministry Director at CWRC, a Christian witness to Roman Catholicism. Robert earned his THM in Historical Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. In 1991, he began working closely with Christians evangelizing Catholics, giving conferences on Roman Catholicism throughout the United States and Great Britain. And in 1994, he he founded CWRC, which has produced a number of video and audio tapes, position papers, pamphlets, and books on Roman Catholicism. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. You're more than welcome. Great to be here. The Reverend Laurent Kleenewerk is my Eastern Orthodox guest. Uh, He's been on the show a couple of times before, a few years ago. He's the editor of the Eastern Greek Orthodox New Testament. He's the rector of St. Innocent's Orthodox Church in Eureka, California, and he serves on the faculty of Humboldt State University and Euclid. He's the editor of the forthcoming Catechism of the Orthodox Faith, and he recently published a book on the topic that we're discussing today entitled Ia Parthenu, Ever Virgin. Laurent, thank you so much for joining me as well. It's a blessing to be uh, with you on the show today. With those introductions out of the way, I'm going to explain the format of today's debate. Uh, The proposition is this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, remained a virgin her entire life. Reverend uh, Reverend Cleanwork affirms and Mr. Zins denies. And here's the format that they've agreed upon. Lawrence going to begin with a 20-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, followed by Robert's 20-minute opening denying it. Laurent will have 10 minutes for his first of two rebuttals, followed by Robert's first 10-minute rebuttal. Laurent and Robert will then each have 15 minutes to cross-examine one another in that order. Following cross-examination, Laurent will present his second 10-minute rebuttal, followed by Robert's second 10-minute rebuttal. And then finally, Laurent will present his five-minute closing statement, followed by Robert's five-minute closing statement. And because there will be no round of Q&A afterwards this time, that'll wrap things up. So with all that out of the way, I'll open briefly in prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so very much for the blessing, and it truly is a blessing, of living in a day and age in which it's possible to gather together like this virtually for miles apart to discuss and debate what it is that you've revealed to us in your word concerning the nature and life of Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would impress upon us and upon all who listen the importance of rightly dividing the word of God when it comes to this issue and that you would make clear to all of us today just what it is that you would have us to understand, but that at the same time, uh, my guests would treat one another with kindness, respect, with charity, and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, uh, so Laurent, you're up first, and when you begin speaking, I'll go ahead and begin your 20-minute timer. Thank you. First of all, a glory to God for all things. Uh, thank you to Chris Date for hosting this debate and to uh, Robert Zins, Rob, for being willing to be my partner, so to speak, in this discussion, which I think is useful and important. The proposition, uh, let us repeat it, for this debate is Mary, the mother of Jesus, remained a virgin her entire life. Now, I will affirm this view. It is a, a basic view, uh, to be frank, from an Orthodox, um, and here we could probably say Greek Orthodox perspective, because the Greek language uh, will, will matter a great deal, I think. Another way to say this in a more Christ-centric way is Jesus did not, in fact, have maternal siblings who were born of the union of Mary and Joseph after he was born. And I will defend and document this position from scripture, from theology, and from history. Let me start uh, this way for, for our listeners and um I think it's true for, for Chris or, or Rob, if you went to these ancient churches, these ancient places uh, in the East uh, for us that have uh, apostolic roots, that have been there since the days of the apostles, and if you ask the people there, did Mary remain a virgin her entire life, or did she have other children after Jesus? Talking about place, places like Jerusalem. To this day, Alexandria in Egypt, Damascus, Sinai, Corinth, Thessaloniki, and some of these places still speak Greek. Well, these Christians would reply quite uh, firmly, and I hope uh, kindly, Mary did not have other children. She remained a virgin. We call her ever-virgin, and it is an historical fact. It's what we have, we've always believed. It is what the church uh, perceives uh, from scriptures and, and tradition. Now here I know that an American Christian having that linguistic and I think cultural mindset uh, might be puzzled. Right? These are people that are persecuted, that have served Christ uh, for 2,000 years. Some of them still speak Aramaic or Greek. How could they be so mistaken? You know, what about the brothers and sisters, Greek Adelphoi of Jesus mentioned in the Gospels? What about this James who is called the brother of the Lord? Is it not obvious to you, know, you people in Greece or Jerusalem or California for me that Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage and therefore other children after Jesus? And, you know, poor Joseph uh, says the modern mind. What a kind of a raw deal for him if he had to live, um, you know, this way uh, chastely for the rest of his life. And what about Jesus being called firstborn? Surely that implies a secondborn. What about the verse that says that Joseph did not um, have relations with Mary until she had given birth to Jesus? So first let me clarify the affirmative statement, which is what the Orthodox Church to this day and since Pentecost teaches about Joseph, Mary, and these relatives, Adelphoi, of our Lord. Here it goes. It teaches that Mary is indeed ever-virgin, parthenos, and anyone attending Orthodox services will hear this very expression at every service, ever-virgin Mary. 
Now, is that conviction uh, a dogma, something essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, uh, it is not. St. Basil the Great in the 4th century uh, did not believe that Mary had other children. Uh, he, in fact, uh, I would argue that no church leader in good standing ever did uh, during the first four centuries. It's that simple. He was orthodox through and through. But he also wrote about the view that Mary had other children, I cite, it is not against the faith, because virginity was imposed on Mary as a necessity only up to the time that she served as an instrument for the incarnation. On the other hand, her subsequent virginity was not essential to this mystery, as the homily on the generation of Christ. However, in the same sermon, which I think is authentic, he says, a few paragraphs uh, afterwards, yet... The friends of Christ do not tolerate hearing that the Theotokos, meaning she who bore the divine one, ever ceased to be a virgin. So it's not an essential element of the gospel. It is not a dogma, at least from an orthodox perspective. But still, it's a conviction and an important teaching. We will see why that is. Now, where does this understanding, this conviction come from? It comes from people knowing the story, we would say, and preserving it. It's that simple. It is something traced to the scriptures, I will argue, as well as to the early Christians. The teaching is that Joseph was an older man, a widower from the line of David. He had sons and daughters before becoming a widower among whom was James, who is called the brother of the Lord, and greatly honored in the Orthodox Church with that title. He took Mary as his wife, even though she had made a vow virginity, we may discuss that today, as he himself had done after becoming a widower. He accepted and raised Jesus as his own son, as his adoptive son. The Bible, therefore, can call Joseph the father of Jesus, Luke 2.23, and Jesus is called the son of Joseph, John 1.45. But we understand in what sense. Now, Mary and Jesus were adopted into Joseph's clan, so to speak, which included many relatives. Among them was Clopas, the brother of Joseph, whose wife was the other Mary, Matthew twenty-seven sixty-one. not Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, of course. This Mary of Clopas had two sons who were James the less, uh, Mikros means the small, maybe the younger, um, and the Orthodox would say that this James the less is not the same as James the son of Joseph, who was called the Lord's brother, and also Joseph or Joseph, there's a, a variant there in Greek. These were all very, very common names, so it can get pretty confusing. When Joseph died, perhaps around the year, say, 20 AD or so, Mary became a widow, and Jesus a technical orphan. They were, of course, supported and co-opted by the clan, so to speak, which included cousins and uncles. So here we can discuss what Adelphoi means in Greek, and in the Bible in general, which includes, of course, the Septuagint, the Greek, uh, the Greek Old Testament. Now, Adelphoi is brothers in the plural, Adelphos, singular. Now, if you've been around, uh, like I, I have, around Greek or 
Middle Eastern families, even African families. You know what I mean from experience? These are flexible terms. Uh, let's discuss this. In the Bible, uh, Adelphoi, plural, or Adelphos, singular, can mean several things. One, strict biological siblings, same father, same mother. We can assume that Peter and Andrew, James and John, were strict Adelphoi. But it's not the sense that we Christians accept for the Adelphoi of Jesus, because we understand the context and we believe in the virgin birth. Thank God. Two, Adelphoi can mean half-siblings, either same father or same mother. For instance, Sarah calls her husband Abraham Adelphos because he was indeed the half-brother, same biological father. In the New Testament, Philip is called the Adelphos of Herod, but they were really half-brothers. So there's two possible meanings here, maternal half-siblings and paternal half-siblings. So here, let's um, think about this. When modern Protestants... And that's not, uh, you know, the, the reformers, uh, that's really a modern view, when, when they would argue that we should take the most literal and obvious sense that the four Adelphoi of Mark 6, 3 are really brothers, they don't mean strict siblings with two biological parents, as the word is used for Peter and Andrew, we assume. And they don't mean, in the sense of Genesis 20, for Sarah and Abraham. So they mean... Uh, Robert means, I'm assuming, half-siblings with the same mother, but not the same bi biological father. Well, that sense of Adelphoi is not obvious. It's actually quite rare. Let me say that again. Adelphoi, meaning maternal half-siblings, is very rare in the Bible. I believe, uh, I think, uh, never found. Let's keep that in mind and continue. Adelphos, Adelphoi, can mean other things, since number three. It can mean adoptive siblings, as in foster siblings or step-siblings, which is a more modern concept. Number four, it can mean cousins or uncles or, or possibly nephews, with the general sense of close relatives, perhaps sharing a house or a village. Five, it can mean people united by spiritual bonds, as, as in the Christian church, or some other special bond, as in the, the Jewish people. So let us see how the Gospel of Matthew, that first uh, book of the Greek New Testament, will use that very term, Adelphos, Adelphoi. The first time is Matthew 1, verse 2, and it means half-brothers sharing the same father Jacob to different mothers, Leah and Rachel. And that was common in biblical times. Now this first usage is basically the meaning understood by the early Christians and the ancient churches to this very day. For Jesus and his Adelphoi, same father Joseph, biological or adoptive, but different mothers. Mary, I will argue, has an only son, Jesus, and she would mourn her only son when a sword would pierce her soul. So Matthew 1-2 says the meaning for us. Now it's critical to understand this. Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus, not like a stepfather. I will cite the great scholar, uh, Richard uh, Bockham, I think it's pronounced Borkham here. He writes, But Matthew and Luke 
do not, in fact, portray Joseph as related to Jesus in the way that a stepfather would be. Since Jesus had no biological father, the relationship was strictly unique. It is much more like an adoptive relationship than like a step relationship. Therefore, if Joseph had children by a previous marriage, Jesus would be their adoptive brother. Now, the second use of Adelphoi is in Matthew is verse 11. And uh, in the uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary, old but still good, it explains the meaning. It says, the brethren here, Adelphoi of Jaconius, obviously mean his uncles, uh, with reference uh, to, to Chronicles 36.10. So we can see that Greek Matthew is going to be heavily influenced by the Septuagint Greek. And it's going to be true for the three words we may discuss today, Adelphoi, or Adelphos, Eos, or Eos who, and Prototokos, firstborn. So, Adelphoi means close relatives, especially sharing the same household, the same table, the same roof. And there's a circle that is more distant still, Relatives, but uh, less close, as in the Greek, uh, both ancient and modern Greek, Singhenis. My point so far is when we, when we encounter a reference to the Adelphoi of Jesus, we need to be uh, guided by the, the scriptural uh, sense and not too quickly assume things. So this being established, I will now present uh, briefly seven basic arguments uh, among many to establish uh, the orthodox proposition today. Many of these arguments also work for the Roman Catholic view, I should, I should say. Okay, number one, uh, let us say something critical and obvious. No one is called the child of son or daughter of Mary in the Bible except Jesus. In Mark 6.3, Jesus is called the son of Mary. It's very unusual, actually, in Jewish, Jewish culture. It's called a, a metronymic, and we may discuss that later. And biblically, I think it really means the son of Mary, as distinguished from sons and daughters from another mother. That's an Old Testament pattern. Number two, the earliest consistent an overwhelming conviction of Christians going back to the earliest documents and church fathers, in fact, all the way to, Mar to Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, is that mother never had other children. I will mention one name, uh, Eusebius, here, because he was a man with exten extensive access to these ancient documents and, and writings. Many are lost. Writing around the year 320, the official history that of what happened since, uh, since Pentecost, he teaches and assumes that James was called the brother of Jesus, as he says, you know, who was called or styled the brother of the Lord, because he was a son of Joseph by a previous marriage. That James and Jesus were as close as two brothers could be, yet without having the same biological mother, and sharing Joseph as their biological and adoptive father. Now, let me remind the listener that the entire theology of the New Testament is that, that adoptive children, us, have the same status as a natural son, Jesus. Uh, and by far, the most common use of Adelphoi, the New Testament, is with that adoptive meaning. Number three, 
the relative age of James and Jesus should be discussed. Uh, at best, the modern view uh, that we will hear, I think, is that James would have been born a couple of years after Jesus. That's very generous. It means that James would have been hardly 30 years old when Jesus died. And then you would have to believe that the apostles chose this young man to be the head, the bishop or presiding presbyter of the mother church of Jerusalem. Now this theory, I think, is hard to defend. This James died in the year 62, 62 AD at a very old age, according to Eusebius, who had records from Palestine. So this relative age of James and Jesus is consistent with James being older than the Lord, not younger. Four, the age of Joseph also uh, has the same result. Uh, the modern idea uh, that he was a young man that was going to marry uh, Mary, I think is difficult. The orthodox view is that he was a widower, let's say 50 years old, when he took Mary as wife with a specific role from God. We can see that he died before 30 AD, I'll say, say 20 AD. Uh, that makes, you know, if you take a young Joseph uh, that then dies in 25 AD, he dies at a fairly young age, 55, at the most 60. Isn't that odd? That you are the, the blessed adoptive father of the incarnate word of God. And you can't be blessed to live at least to the biblical age of 70 or 75. Compare to Joseph, the 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 prototype in Egypt who died at the year at the age of 110 or even King David the other prototype at, at 70 no this modern view I think does not make sense number five there is the vow of virginity that we perceive at least some of us do in the dialogue between Gabriel and Mary and in fact there's an entire chapter in the Bible numbers 30 about vows that are taken by women and we'll discuss that perhaps later if we have time. It's a, it's a longer argument. Number six, what happens at the cross? Now, we see that Mary, being a widow, having an only son, is, is being pierced in her soul, and she's losing that, that only son. And in fact, Zechariah 12.10 is fulfilled. It's the prophecy of the piercing of the Messiah. And it says that they will mourn as one mourns for a firstborn and an only son. And so we can see that our Protestant friends don't see that they are, in a sense, robbing Mary of this tremendous and unique pain. In the Bible, for a mother to lose an only child is the ultimate mourning. And that is what happens at the cross, there are not, you know, five or six other children there, which is why Mary is entrusted by by the Lord to John. In fact, it's the last act that the Lord does to entrust Mary to John and John to Mary. It's a very moving scene, and so we understand also now that in Nain, when the Lord sees the scene of a widow who has lost her her only son. He intervenes and accomplishes this great miracle because he sees, I believe, his own mother about to have the same terrible experience. 
There's many more uh, arguments which we may discuss, but this is my opening statement, uh, at least a few of them, and I therefore rest my case and uh, give over uh, the microphone to the host. All right. Well, thank you, Laurent. I appreciate you coming in under time by about 20 seconds. Very, very well timed. Uh, and Robert, if you are ready to go, then as soon as you begin delivering your opening presentation, I'll start your timer as well. Okay. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And I want to get right into the opening statement by asking some questions. The first, of course, is the question for us to answer is whether Mary remained a virgin throughout her life. Is this really the teaching of the Word of God? And an examination of Scripture, I think, will yield the conclusion that Mary had a normal sexual relationship with her husband, Joseph, after giving birth to Jesus, and that she gave birth to other children as well. She did not remain a perpetual virgin. Now, it is unclear to me the exact position of the Eastern Orthodox Church on the doctrine of Scripture. However, it is the position of virtually all Protestant denominations that the Bible alone is sufficient for faith and practice. Hence, all matters of belief that bind the conscience of a Christian must be substantiated from the Bible. And in light of this, there are three primary questions to answer with regard to the alleged perpetual virginity of Mary. They are as follows. Number one, did Mary, the mother of Jesus, make a vow of perpetual virginity? Number two, did Joseph keep Mary a virgin after the birth of Jesus Christ? And number three, did Jesus have literal biological brothers and sisters. Now, question number one, again, is did Mary, the mother of Jesus, make a vow of perpetual virginity? We must begin our inquiry with the Annunciation. Mary, the betrothed virgin to her soon-to-be husband, Joseph, would give birth to the Son of God. And we read this account in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and following. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now from this passage we learn that Mary is a virgin at the time of Gabriel's visit to her. We also learn that Mary, while a virgin, had been chosen by God to conceive the Son of God. We also observe that Mary did not understand 
how she could possibly conceive since she was a virgin at the time. She asked, how can this be since I'm a virgin? She knew how it might be. She understood how to get pregnant. It is the position of some that she did not understand how she could conceive because she had made a vow of virginity. Some also assert that she is astonished that she is asked to disavow an alleged vow of virginity. But Mary's question, how can this be, directs us to her understanding that she would conceive a child immediately. She asked, how will this be since a man I know not? The word here translated as no in the Greek gnosko, it's in the present tense. Mary does not say, how can this be since I will not know a man? No, it is how can this be now? There's no pledge here to never know a man. There's only the simple perplexity from wondering how this can be right now since a man she had not known yet. Gabriel's announcement to Mary is the equivalent of an angel, for instance, who might appear to any of us announcing that we had found favor with God. Let's just take this example. Suppose an angel appeared to you and said you're going to own AT&T, General Motors, IBM, and the state of Utah. The normal way of coming into ownership of such massive assets would be to buy them, but you are currently a little short of cash for such acquisitions. So you probably would ask, how can this be since I know not that kind of money? In saying this, you are not vowing to never buy property, and you are not vowing to never have money. You're simply asking the direct question, how can this be? I don't have the money. Remember, Mary was considered to be the wife of Joseph. In some cases, sexual relations were permitting during the betrothal period. However, Joseph and Mary had decided to not consummate their marriage prior to the second stage. But this is definitely the first stage in a two-stage marriage ceremony which was expected to be consummated by sexual relations. Would Joseph have married a woman who had pledged virginity? We believe that he would not. And this will become clearer as we examine other Bible passages. But before moving on to other biblical texts, we need to consider the following. There is absolutely no mention in Scripture of a virgin making a vow of virginity and getting married at the same time. Such a vow would violate the clear teaching of Scripture that a woman's body is not her own upon entering a marriage relationship. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If someone wanted to remain a virgin in order to be devoted to the Lord, the advice of the apostle is to remain unmarried. It is not to declare a vow of virginity and then get married. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 7, And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, it seems we're not alone in our assessment of marriage, Mary's alleged vow of virginity in this portion of Scripture. 
One well-respected Roman Catholic theologian, Ludwig Ott, states the following, quote, Holy Writ only indirectly attests the continuance of Mary's virginity after the birth. Now, I'm quoting the Roman Catholic scholar because the Roman Catholic religion is fully committed to the perpetual virginity of Mary, but yet one of their most respected theologians says Holy Writ only indirectly attests the continuance of Mary's virginity. He also goes on to say, and I quote, In light of this text, St. Augustine and many fathers and theologians believe that Mary made a formal vow of virginity. However, the subsequent espousals can hardly be reconciled with this. So here we have a strong Roman Catholic theologian taking exception to many of the Church Fathers and Augustine himself, who had purportedly believed that Mary made a formal vow of virginity here. Now, question number two is, did Joseph keep Mary a virgin after the birth of Jesus Christ? We go now to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we read the following. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and she calls his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now Joseph arose from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew informs us that though Joseph and Mary were betrothed, they had not yet come together. What does this word imply, not yet come together? Well, so strong is the context in favor of coming together as referring to sexual relations that Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, Greek lexicon, has a separate category expressing this very idea. The main point is that Matthew is focusing on the virgin birth of Jesus. If before they came together references only living together, the force of the virgin birth loses its impact. It would not be any more significant for Mary to be found pregnant before they came together than after they came together if coming together means only perpetual virgins living platonically with one of their best friends. However, the more significant issue from this passage is the meaning of verse 25. He, Joseph, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. The main clause of this sentence is, he kept her a virgin. The issue is whether this action, keeping Mary a virgin, continues after the birth of Jesus, or does this action change, as signified by the word until? Should it be, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and continued to keep her a virgin forever? This is the action of the main clause, continuing 
after the word until? Or should we translate, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and then had normal sex with her. The action of the main clause stops after the word until. Now, the Greek construction here is critical. Matthew uses actually two words. They are hails, who, which is translated until in English. There are many Greek constructions which are translated until, and the word until has many nuances. But whenever this particular Greek construction is used throughout the New Testament, the action of the clause preceding it always ends. Heos, who, never has the meaning of until and then continuing. In Matthew 13.33, we have an example of this. Matthew records, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leaven. Obviously, the word until there means a discontinuation of the action of the first clause, until it was all leaven, and then she didn't hide three pecks of meal. Matthew 17.9 says much the same thing. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Obviously, he didn't want them to be quiet about the vision. He wanted them to tell no one until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, and then they were free to tell one and all. One more example, Matthew 18.34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed. Obviously, the torture did not continue after he had paid his debts in full. And this brings us to Matthew one twenty-five. And he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. There's a final thought here on this passage. The use of the Greek imperfect tense in Matthew one twenty-five, Joseph kept her, as opposed to the heiress, is meaningful. The imperfect is action ongoing in the past without anticipating an end to the action. This makes sense. All during the time up until Mary gave birth, Joseph kept her a virgin. And then, after that, they had normal sexual relations. Now, the final question is this. Did Jesus have literal biological brothers and sisters? We move now to a collection of biblical passages which state directly that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. Matthew 12:46. while he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Matthew 13, 54, And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogues so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not Mary called? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? All our understanding of Jesus' family rests upon the meaning of the Greek term adelphos, brother, and adelphae, sister. 
Is there any reason in the Bible to understand these terms other than common uterine brother and sister? Are the ones called brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ really merely his near relatives, cousins, or spiritual brothers and sisters only? We don't think so, and we don't think there is any reason to translate these two Greek terms in any other way other than blood, brothers, and sisters. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Adelphos does have a wide semantical range. But this wide semantical range has nothing to do with the use of Adelphos in the New Testament. We agree that the use of Adelphos and Adelphi in the Old Testament could, in translation of the Hebrew term ak, refer to cousins or relatives, but that's not the point of the New Testament. We're quick to point out that in the Old Testament, Adelphos refers to biological brothers as well. In fact, on most occasions where Adelphos is used, it refers to normal sibling relationships. One would get the impression from our opponent that Adelphos in the Old Testament was referencing cousins and uncles and aunts and other relatives, but that's not true. In the New Testament, the word grouping Adelphos and Adelphae are used of biological siblings. They also use of countrymen, fellow man, and spiritual siblings, but there is no New Testament usage of either of these words as referring to near relatives or cousins. In fact, these words are used in context with near relatives so as to distinguish the two. Our point is this. When referring to biological siblings or relationships in the family, the word Adelphos, brother, Adelphi, sister, are always used to describe a biological sibling relationship. Listen to these words from Luke 14:12, And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. Again, Luke 21:16. But you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. In the Greek, the word for relative here is sugenis. It is in contrast to adelphos. One can easily see that in the New Testament, the writers, if they wished to convey the idea that someone was a relative, they had a word at their disposal for use for relative or near kinsman. They did not have to resort to the word adelphos. Also, the New Testament distinguishes between brother, adelphos, sister, adelphi, and cousin, anephthys. In Colossians 4.10, we read these words. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark. Paul understood the difference between a cousin and a brother or a sister. All of the New Testament writers understood this difference. It is important to note that every time Adelphos is used in the New Testament where a brother is named, it is a biological sibling. We read in Matthew 4:18, and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. One cannot possibly strain the text to include the definition of cousin, near relative, or spiritual brethren in these instances 
of the use of Adelphos. We close this portion with the presentation on Matthew 12, 46-50. Let's read the text as our opponent would have us read it. This is what our opponent might have us read in this section. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and cousins were standing outside to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your near relatives and some cousins are standing out seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my cousins and who are my near relatives? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my cousins. Now, this is not what the text says. The text says his mother and his brothers were standing outside. Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. And he asked the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And that's when he stretched his hand forward and he says, for whoever will do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and he is my mother. Not near relative, not cousin. The New Testament writers had at their disposal all of these terms and they used them well and they knew the distinctions. It is a stretch beyond imagination to take the word Adelphos or Adelphe and stretch it out to mean relative, near cousin, or some other distant relationship other than biological brother or sister. Okay, that that's about 21 minutes. Is it okay if we wrap up, Robert? I don't yeah, mean to cut you off. Just, okay. That's, that's okay. That's fine. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. And at this point, we'll return to Laurent for his uh, first of two 10-minute rebuttals. And Laurent, when you are ready to go, when you begin speaking, I'll start your timer. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Robert, for uh, this, um, I think, uh, good uh, – presentation. You took the time to read also Luke 1 and uh, Matthew 1. I'm grateful that you took the time to do that. Uh, that was very helpful. So I will address uh, the arguments that were um, presented since uh, it's my time for a, a rebuttal. Uh, I noticed, of course, that um, uh, Rob really addressed what tends to be the uh, Latin position, which is that the Adelphoi are most probably cousins, um, and uh, it is not what I uh, presented, although I would be glad if we have time to discuss uh, why that is not an, an impossible uh, situation. I'll, I'll do so briefly. The reason why Roman Catholics uh, prefer that view is that uh, James and Joseph are referred to as the Adelphoi of Jesus in Mark 6, um, 3, and in Mark later on, 27, I believe, no, uh, not sure where in Mark 16, um, they are mentioned again, possibly the same two people, uh, James uh, the Less and Joseph, as being in fact the sons of Clopas. And we know from history uh, that Clopas was the brother of Joseph. And therefore, uh, those two um, were, um, considering the, the adoptive relationship between uh, Joseph and Jesus, they were, they were adoptive cousins uh, of, the, of the Lord. And if we accept, as for example, uh, Father John McHugh uh, argued in his, uh, in his book, that when Joseph died, um, 
then um, Jesus and Mary were co-opted in Clopas's clan, then they really became the Adelphoi. And I think uh, the case can be made. It's not something that's completely implausible, especially if one wants to, to really address the, the fact that James and Joseph are referred to possibly twice. Okay, but I want to discuss um, you know, the Greek and uh, the points being made. I will start not with a vow a discussion, but with uh, Matthew 1.18 and the points that were made. Um, Robert argues that this verse is really strong evidence, the whole uh, section 18 through 25, that Joseph had marital relations with Mary after Jesus was born. And I would argue that it uh, seems... Uh, as it is the strongest arrow for that position. But as I will show, uh, it does not fly very far. In fact, I really think that Matthew chapter 1 has a very plain meaning if we're really careful to consider the intent, the grammar, and the context. Matthew is concerned with one thing and only one thing, that Joseph cannot could not in any shape or form have anything to do with the conception of Jesus. The focus is the word not. There was no intercourse before the conception or, in fact, during the pregnancy, and therefore no biological causality. Because Joseph does take Mary as wife soon after the pregnancy starts, um, we see that apart from these three months that Mary spends with Elizabeth, they are now husband and wife. Now, let's be frank. Most married couples have intercourse during the pregnancy. Why not Joseph and Mary? Joseph could say, well, the baby uh, has been conceived by the power of God, so now we can move on and have that normal marital life, including during the pregnancy. But this, it does not happen, which is interesting. In Matthew 1.25, in fact, I think the translation used by Rob is not good. Um, it, the, it does not say that Joseph kept her a virgin. It says that Joseph did not know her until, which I think conveys a, a very different um, sense in, in Greek and even in English. Um, and then he mentions that particular tense that is used there. Uh, but I disagree completely. I think that the use of the imperfect tense, in fact, is significant uh, for, the, for the other position, as John McHugh has argued. Joseph was not knowing her until the birth, which is the end point of the concern of Matthew because of the prophecy of Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin conceives and the virgin gives birth. Right. Now, if the end point was not the birth, so, you know, did not know her uh, until some other point, like until her purification, then that would be significant. But in fact, there is no marital intercourse anyways after birth for at least 40 days. This was true under the Mosaic Law and true for any married couple today. Um, takes six weeks, uh, as if you ask a doctor. So Matthew writes what needs to be written in good Greek. And uh, that, uh, that until this point, there can be no causality uh, regarding Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. And Mary uh, is the one who fulfills Isaiah 7, the virgin as conceived and the virgin gives birth. So this verse proves nothing 
about what happens uh, after, uh, afterwards, after the purification and so on. And in fact, most commentaries agree uh, the construction could imply reversal, that is true, but it does not necessitate reversal. Now here I would add, which I think is critical, that no early father of the church, I mean those early people who read and spoke Greek in their native language, uh, read this modern view into Matthew 1, uh, 25. People like Origen, John Chrysostom discussed who uh, they spoke the, the language natively, and they uh, did not at all sense that this necessitated a reversal, um, and that's I think very very significant. Now it has been uh, claimed uh, by some people that Eos who um, always implies reversal in the. Uh, New Testament. Well, first of all, we'd have to look at Heos who throughout the scriptural corpus. That would have to include the Septuagint, of course, as well as contemporary literature. And what we find is that Heos who is, in fact, not different than Heos. Uh, it just seems that, first of all, some manuscripts don't even have the who, right? It's, it's in brackets in critical texts. I think it was there. John Chrysostom says it was there, but he shows that heos who and heos are really inter interchangeable. Uh, there is no, no effect. It, it may be used for, for emphasis, basically, uh, the, that it's, it's emphatically not. There is no involvement of Joseph. But really, uh, even those verses that were cited uh, that imply uh, reversal, um, I would at least challenge one if we had time we could do that. But the point is that heos who and heos are basically the same, and they can certainly imply uh, the continuation of the clause. Um, uh, Matthew seems to prefer uh, this construction. Uh, there's uh, chapters where um, he uses heos and heos interchangeably, and this, this is not significant at all. And again, the Greek-speaking fathers um, who really knew the language uh, can tell you that. Right now, um, there's this thing about the vow. Uh, well, um, there is a, a chapter uh, that talks about vows, uh, Matthew 30, and there is, of course, uh, ancient documents. Uh, I agree, not scripture, but very ancient, such as the Portugal of James, a second century document that has the, the whole story and why there is a vow that was taken. But uh, basically, the, the example given by, by Rob, I think, is not a good one. You know, you'll become the owner of some big, uh, big thing, and you say, I don't have the money. Well, the difference is that Mary and Joseph have planned to get married. Uh, and so I will just read briefly one uh, Catholic commentary, which I think makes the point very well. Uh, the person says, to my mind, Mary's question, uh, how shall it be since I do not know man? lacks historical plausibility unless you presuppose a vow virginity. Imagine that you are building a rocket ship. It is near completion, and just then an angel appears to you. He tells you that you will go to the moon. You're going to build a castle, be part of a great victory. At this point in the dialogue, the absolute last question you would ask is, how will I get to the moon? The only person who is going to ask such a question is the person who is not in the midst of building a rocket. 
It is just the same in Mary's case. She is betrothed to Joseph. The angel says that she will conceive. If she has, uh, if she had not resolved to remain a virgin, then she would naturally assume the conception will soon take place when they have intercourse uh, with the soon-to-be husband. But the angel did not mention anything miraculous in connection with the conception. For her to ask about the nature of the conception after hearing what the angel said reveals that she had no late plans of pursuing natural relations with her future husband, Joseph. Okay. All right. Um, finally, there's the uh, the issue of um, the meaning of Adelphos, uh, and we've, I've discussed that at length. Um, I do not think that uh, pressing this as meaning uh, blood brothers in the sense of of maternal siblings, which is what is being uh, pressed here, is in fact the the common sense, and the scene is uh, the scenes are very, um, very, I think, more plausible when you accept the view that these, in fact, were um, both uh, the sons of Joseph um, or daughters, as well as other relatives that were very close to Jesus since um, he had been raised with them. Okay. I have to cut you off. I'm sorry. We're, we're at about 11 minutes. Uh, okay. And at this point, I will hand the proverbial microphone over to Robert for the first of his 10-minute rebuttals. Robert, whenever you're ready. Okay, thank you. I'd like to uh, comment on some of uh, the statements that have been made. Uh, in the first place, in the opening statement, uh, it was said that since Pentecost, no, no church fathers uh, had taken the view that Mary had other biological siblings, uh, children for Jesus' biological siblings. That's not true, and I hope to prove that in the closing statement. Also, the entire position of my opponent today is that Joseph was a widower. There's absolutely no mention of Joseph being a widower in the Bible. I know that there are some who like to talk about traditions and things handed down, but there are, have been so many tales and so many false gospels written and pseudepigraphal writings and statements from uh, even some of the early church fathers that don't stand up to biblical scrutiny. And, and I don't see how you can build an entire position based upon the idea that Joseph was a widower and that uh, he brought children from a previous marriage into his relationship with Mary, and on top of that, to maintain that Joseph also had a vow of virginity, and that somehow Mary was adopted into the family of Joseph after Joseph died, and hence any kind of relationship that states brother or sister must refer to adoptive brothers and adoptive sisters. All of this is speculation. There's not one shred of evidence in the Bible that speaks to any of this, and yet that's the entire position being presented. Now, I want to say a word about um, Hales Who, the Greek construction in Matthew uh, 125, and he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. There is an excellent book. It's entitled, Who is My Mother?, written by Eric Stenson. It's probably one of the best Protestant works ever written on the question of Mary's perpetual virginity, and he devotes page after page after page of a distinction between heos, 
and heos who in the construction of the New Testament. Now, my opponent today is probably a much better Greek scholar than I am, but the conclusion of Stenson is that there is a difference between eos who and eos who too, as well as heos used alone. My opponent would have us say, oh, there's no difference. They're all just about the same, and they are interchangeable. They are not interchangeable. If you look up every single usage of hills who in the New Testament, you will find that when that construction is used, the action of the secondary clause is changed from the action of the first clause. And that's exactly what we have in Matthew chapter 1 verse 25. Now, I know my opponent doesn't like the translation that I have, but we can read it in the Greek text in the same way. And um, he knew not her, he owes who, until she bore a son, and he called the name of him Jesus. So he knew not her is about exactly the same as he kept her a virgin. In other words, he didn't have sex with her until after she gave birth to Jesus. Matthew is not interested in stretching this out and giving us the exact month, day, time that he had sex with his wife after she gave birth to um, Jesus. He simply says that Joseph kept her a virgin, did not have sex with her as part of keeping somebody a virgin and not having sex with her until after she gave birth. Now, there was a remark on the Luke chapter. I have a note here that uh, we want. I don't think I'll have time to get to. I'll get that uh, in another rebuttal. What I want to say uh, furthermore, moving forward, is that this is not the only portion of Scripture that we're concerned with, the Gospels. We read in 1 Corinthians 9 from the pen of the Apostle Paul, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord? Adelphi. It's the same word, brothers of the Lord. In Galatians 1, 18 and 19, Paul says that I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Again, in Acts 1, 12 through 14, Luke records these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We read again in Mark 3.21, And he came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his mind. Now here Mark says his own people. He distinguishes between this early crowd that went out after Jesus as his own people. But later on, in the same context, Mark 3.31, and his mother and his brothers arrived. Once again, over and over again, we see the New Testament confirms the concept that our Lord Jesus Christ had siblings, brothers and sisters. And it, it just seems to me that there is no reason and no reason given thus far to understand the narrative as anything else but that. It is, it is not for me to impugn motives to anybody, but having debated Roman Catholic theologians on this very issue, I know that it is a block, a foundation block in their efforts to continue on 
not only with the perpetual virginity of Mary, but also the sinlessness of Mary and then the assumption of Mary into heaven, ultimately raising her to the level of a female goddess and co-redemptrix with Jesus Christ. I'm not impugning this kind of motive to the Eastern Orthodox understanding of Mary at this point, but the motive for this kind of interpretation of the New Testament escapes me, and with the Roman Catholic religion, it's designed to take Mary all the way to the top. Now, there was a discussion by one of the Roman Catholic authors who is talking about why is why is Jesus called the son of Mary and the others are called the brothers of Jesus? Why not the sons of Mary? The answer to that, I think, is pretty clear-cut. The New Testament, in its design and its is not concerned with the vantage point of Mary or anybody else. It's concerned with the vantage point of Jesus Christ. And every mention of his siblings is from that vantage point, not from the vantage point of Mary to elevate her, but from the vantage point of Jesus. They are his brothers. It is his mother. So these kinds of things are blown out of proportion and presented as an argument because Jesus is called the Son of of Mary doesn't diminish the fact that they who are with him are his real biological brothers. And I would end with that point at the moment. Thank you. So at this point, we get to move into what I think is the most important and most uh, fruitful part of a debate, which is the cross-examination period. It's this, it's this period in any debate where I think that two positions really get to sharpen one another and, and test their mettle against one another. And so the way that we're going to do this is that we're going to have 15 minutes during which Laurent will, get, will have the opportunity to control the time and, and ask questions of Rob. And when that 15 minutes is over, then the roles will be reversed and Robert will be controlling the time and asking questions of Laurent. So, Laurent, when you're ready to go, you can begin asking your questions of uh, Robert, and I'll start your timer. Okay, very good. Um, uh, Robert, um, just to confirm, um, so no one is called uh, child of Mary, son or or daughter in the New Testament, except for Jesus, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, Now, you do um, agree that um, by Adelphoi, you often say biological uh, or blood uh, siblings, you really mean half-siblings from the same mother, is that correct? Well, the term Adelphos can be referred to either biological sibling or half-brother or half-sister, yes. So to be specific, so you mean that they were uh, his maternal siblings, that's what it means? Right, maternal siblings. That's how we are taking it. We're taking it as Jesus' uterine brothers and sisters from Mary. Do you do you have any verse in the Greek Old Testament in which Adelphos means maternal siblings? Because I don't have any. Well, the term brother, Adelphoi, in the Old Testament translated in from the... Uh, from the Hebrew word ak, does refer to brothers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, what I'm saying is. Mm-hmm. Well, to, to clarify is that, if, and tell me if I'm correct, the only way you can really use Adelphos to mean uh, uh, brothers in the sense that you uh, 
you know, advocate is that, in fact, they were maternal biological siblings and also adoptive uh, through Joseph. Uh, and so they're, in a way, full siblings in that sense. Is that correct? Because otherwise you don't have a single case of Adolphos, meaning uterine half-siblings in the, in the Old Testament. So you have to accept that. Right. Whenever there's, there's Adelphoi, it's always same father, different mothers uh, in the Old Testament. It's never maternal uh, half-siblings. So m- my point is that if I'm going to, to, to give the Eastern view that those people were mostly the adoptive siblings of Jesus, would you agree that Adelphoi works really well to describe that? They were, in fact, the Adelphoi of Jesus because they were his adoptive siblings. Isn't that a valid use? I can see you can criticize, uh, um, you know, spiritual siblings or or um, cousins. I can see the point, but do you see how the word Adelphoi works very well to describe these these adoptive um, half, um, you know, these adoptive siblings? If that is in fact what they are, is that that's the right Greek term? Is that correct? Well, if the New Testament told us that Jesus had adoptive brothers that Joseph brought brothers in his brothers into the marriage by virtue of uh, a previous marriage and that uh, he adopted those children and then he adopted Jesus yes then we would say that my point is, is that there's no shred of evidence whatsoever that Joseph adopted Mm-hmm. All Any right. other brothers for Jesus? Do you see okay. what I'm saying? All right. L- yeah. Well, let's maybe let's I'm maybe explore. Right. Well, let's explore then. Uh, in my opening statement, I argued uh, that uh, James was was older than Jesus, right? Uh, and I argued this on on two points, which was that uh, uh, he would have been just too young to be chosen as the as the chief presbyter, and that he was when he died in sixty. Well, why would you was, argue that? Why would you argue he was too young to be chosen as presbyter? Is that not speculation? Well, I'm I'm trying to make a plausible reading of the scriptures. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but the Orthodox Church has these. These records, these traditions, and so we, you know, we know the age. I agree that it's not in the Bible. But we can infer the plausible age. What I'm saying is that, um, you know, the apostles had to choose someone to be their chief presbyter, which means elder, and they would have chosen someone who was hardly 30 years old. Isn't that less likely than our view, which is that he was perhaps 50, 55? Isn't that more more a biblical pattern than the surprising choice of a 30-year-old to be the chief elder? Not necessarily. It's all speculation. It's all assumption. I mean, right. I, don't, okay. in fact, I don't think I can safely say that James, the brother of Jesus, was too young to be a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. His experience, his relationship with his brother, his eyewitness uh, relationship with all that his brother went through, and the subsequent uh, formation of the body of Christ with the apostles of the Lord might qualify him eminently to be a pillar in the church. This is a new formation. This is a new thing. And, and, And you see what you... What, what I object to is that you're coming along and saying things like, 
Well, we don't have any proof in Scripture. We don't have any understanding of this coming from Scripture. We're just assuming, or it's or it's our understanding that this possibly could be this, whereas the clear statement of the New Testament is that James is the brother of the Lord. Unless, unless Paul made a mistake, unless his statement is well, not true. Well, every, you know, every, just to... Let's just go go with questions. What about Joseph? I argued that um, Joseph died around maybe the year, say, 20. uh, We don't really know, but say he died before the Lord's baptism. Do you agree with that? That Joseph is dead by the time Jesus becomes uh, active? I don't know. Okay. there's There's no mention of Joseph after the birth narratives in the New Testament. There is mention of Mary and her travels with her other sons and with Jesus' brothers. But there is no account of Joseph. So if Joseph had died by this time, then by this time Mary is traveling with her sons, including Jesus. Do do you... Okay, all right. um, You know, uh, certainly Svensson, whom you cited, uh, and I think most people would concur that Joseph was was dead, and we could discuss that, but uh, that's all right. Um, Do you see any sign of other younger children in Luke when Luke discusses uh, the Lord being lost in the temple, so to speak, at the age of 12? Any any signs of uh, other kids there in the the narrative? No, but that's an argument from silence, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Well, do you, have, do you have any verse that um, that uh, proves that Jesus remains celibate and a virgin, or is that also maybe from silence? Are we not that having Jesus, to uh, that that Jesus remained himself a lifelong virgin? Do we have, you know, a, a positive statement of that, or is it something we can infer sometimes from silence? Well, you couldn't infer one way or the other. The mm-hmm. text doesn't say, does it? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, uh, is it true that um, uh, Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, which believed in Sola Scriptura, still believed that Mary remained a perpetual virgin? Is that an historical uh, fact that they believed? That? Yes, I think so. I, I, yeah. I think you're right on that. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Now, you you, uh, you cited uh, from the work um, by Eric Svensson, and I discussed that work uh, at length in my book, um, uh, which I think is not very, uh, you know, very sound scholarship. But do you think that Eric Svensson um, spoke better Greek than, say, Origen, uh, who was this Greek scholar in the, in the 200s in Egypt who never saw... Um, reversal in, in that text. I mean, do, do we have to believe that it takes a, um, a modern uh, evangelical scholar to, to undo what these Greek-speaking authors understood, that it, there was no implication of reversal? Well, I don't know if Eric Spenson can speak Greek at all, but his research doesn't really require him to be Greek-speaking, and also I would say that his research is directly from the text of the New Testament. The O's Who is the O's Who, no matter who's reading it, Origen or Eric Benson or you or me. And if that's the evidence of the New Testament, if that's what it entails, then I think you should pay attention to it. I think we should all pay attention to it. It's not as though we have a different text than Origen. He had the same text in front of us 
that we had. He had the same Greek text. So Origen's not here to argue with Stenson, but we are here to debate the issue. But we do have writings from Origen, Chrysostom, who were Greek, uh, native Greek speakers, and they discuss this topic, and they they con- they conclude that Mary was did not have other children. So I'm just you know, I'm a French guy. So if someone wants to argue with me on the French language, who doesn't speak the language, who uh, uses uh, disputable uh, disputable uh, methods, then. I just speak the language. I mean, I can tell you if, if something means something or not. Uh, so I'm just, you know, I don't think that uh, these modern uh, uh, things, uh, they, they need to be uh, looked at. I agree I did in my book. But uh, just, you know, to just to talk about these uh, these sources, just moving on because we're short on time. Um, now, why would why would Jesus entrust his, his mother Mary to John? Even though he knew that his, Adelf- his Adelphoi were going to convert, which we agree that they did, so why why would he do that? Well, we don't know exactly when they converted to the Lord, and at the time of the crucifixion, it seems natural for Jesus to be closer and more concerned with those with whom he shared a spiritual relationship with than those whom he knew, if he knew it, and their their limitations to the knowledge of Jesus and his incarnation, but if he knew it, then uh, for the future. So it would seem to me that Mary being entrusted with the body of Christ would make sense, especially in light of the fact that Jesus had already said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? They are they, those who do the will of God. So he has already transferred a blood relationship to uh, a spiritual relationship and uh, made a statement on the greater value of the spiritual relationship. So I would think that that would be perfectly in line with what Jesus would do at the cross. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned that you disagreed with me that during the first, uh, you know, the first 400 years, uh, I... I stated that uh, there is no father in, in bishop in good standing that taught anything else than, than that Mary was ever virgin. Um, you said you disagreed. So what, what names can you bring forward um, um, that are people that would have your position during those first 400 years? Well, I'm going to direct your attention to a book by a Roman Catholic scholar, of all people, who disagrees with McHugh and writes uh, at length against him, John P. Meyer's work, A Marginal Jew Rethinking the Historical Jesus. uh, Meyer is a Roman Catholic scholar, and he points us in the direction of a number of witnesses. He points us in the direction of Josephus in Jewish Antiquities, referring to Jesus as James as the brother of Jesus, and Josephus was a Greek-speaking Jew. Eusebius in Ecclesiastical History quotes from Hagesippus, who refers to James as the brother of the Lord. Tertullian, in writing against Marcion, appeals to Mark 3, 31-35, where Tertullian comments that Jesus transferred the names of blood relationship to others whom he judged to be more closely related to him. It's the key word there is blood relationships. Tertullian felt that Mark 3, 31 through 35, 
under, was under, to be understood as blood relationship. His brothers, literal brothers, were outside waiting for him. And uh, he points to Irenaeus uh, writing a parallel between the creation of Adam and the creation of Jesus. Well, actually, he goes on and on uh, in pre-Nicene Church Father testimony to the validity of a position that Jesus had literal brothers and sisters. In fact, in his book, he concludes that the the historical evidence is in, and there's nothing pre-Nicene that speaks to the opposite. It's all post-Nicene, and I noticed that you quoted post-Nicene church fathers. Okay, yeah, I don't want to. You've, get got, too, you've got about. You've got time to ask one more really quick question. Okay, okay. I just want to briefly reply here to to Rob, just because uh, he took some time to cite those names. Now, just to be clear, um, um, I, I have discussed uh, John P. Mayer uh, in in my book, so I'll let people look at that. Um, it's Josephus calls. James, the brother of the Lord, or Jesus, and we agree. Uh, nobody disputes that. Uh, that's his title. To this very day, uh, we call him in the Greek Orthodox Church, Adelphotheos, the brother of our God, to use that term. So the point is not that. The point is, is that these, um, is not the use of that expression, is, is what they taught about what it meant. Um, Eusebius, indeed, uh, citing uh, Jesippus and other ancient sources, and he was very faithful to these, these ancient sources, taught and believed what I'm uh, saying today is that Joseph was an older man and he had, you know, ancient records and that um, uh, these were uh, adoptive siblings. Um, so Tertullian did not stay in the church. He's, um, he left the church. I dispute Arrhenius who taught that Mary was the new Eve and I think that the uh, the whole argument of the new Eve, uh, you know, uh, is in fact in favor of Mary remaining a virgin. But I think the the listener should really pay attention on on his or her own time to to all of these uh, ancient writers to see why is it that the people that we trust for for the scriptures uh, believed uh, that Mary was ever virgin. Okay. Okay. And, and, and if you want to, okay. Well, hold on. Uh, it's about to be your turn in a second, Robert. But I just want to let you know, Lauren, that when your when your second rebuttal comes along, you'll have more time okay. to respond if you'd okay. like. Okay. Very good. Um, so, Robert, it's now your turn. If you're ready to begin, I'll start your 15-minute timer to uh, control the time in asking Lauren questions. Okay, Lauren, are you familiar with Psalm 69 in the Old Testament? Yes, I am. Okay, do you have a Bible and you might want to turn to Psalm 69? Okay. Would you agree that Psalm 69 is a prophetic psalm as interpreted by New Testament writers as a prophecy in the events in the life of Jesus Christ? Uh, n yes and no. I would agree that out of 36 verses, uh, uh, two are prophetic and, and cited specifically, but I would say that many others cannot be applied to Christ. Okay, would you say Psalm 69.4 mm -hmm. would be a reference uh, to Jesus Christ? Uh, let me... Uh, look at the text. Um, but uh, yes, there are uh, two verses that are cited by the New Testament specifically uh, as having an application. It's also very clear that other verses cannot have uh, this application. So we have to be careful and I think only accept those verses that the New Testament cites as being applicable, since clearly other verses are not. 
Okay, Psalm 69.4, uh, John quotes in John 15.25, they hated me without cause. Do you agree with that? Psalm 69.4? Yes. Uh, John, John, uh, Psalm 69.9, John 2.17, and the disciples remember that was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Would you agree with that? Psalm 69.9? Yes, those two are cited specifically by the uh, New Testament. Uh, and again, out of 36 uh-huh. verses, uh, these two are... How about, Rome? How about Romans 15.3? Psalm 69.9? Again, Romans 15.3, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Yes, those are cited. Yes, I agree. Okay, Psalm... Uh, now. How- but let me ask you, does, does... Psalm 69, it's my turn to ask questions, okay? Sure, sure, sure. I just want to get through this. Psalm 69, 8, then, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Yes. Now, your, your position on this, I'm going to use this as an illustrator. As I understand your position, even if Psalm 69, 8 is used by John... In John 7, 5, for neither did his brothers believe on him, your position would be, well, his brothers didn't believe on him, but they are his brothers by adoption. They are not his uterine brothers. Is that correct? Yes. In fact, you know, commentators uh, on, on the way John cites Psalm 69, I've noticed that John does not cite that verse which you mentioned. And clearly... Psalm 69 has to be looked at very carefully. Uh, verse 5, for example, uh, says, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now that verse, which is right before what you cited, cannot possibly apply to Jesus. Likewise, I would argue that um, uh, verses 10 through, through 11 cannot be applied to Jesus. And likewise, the end of the you know, 23 through 28. So, New Testament takes these very specific um, expressions from someone who did have uh, four brothers, applies only very specific things, but you can see that this, this psalm as a whole you cannot apply to Jesus. And that's why I think okay. John does I, not I cite... Agree. I agree with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. The entire psalm cannot be applied to Jesus, no. but it, it's possible that John 7, 5 does apply to Psalm 69, 8, because Psalm 69, 8 says directly, I have become estranged from my brothers. Yes. And John 7, 5 says, neither did his brothers believe on him. Not the exact same, and it's not a quotation, but the background reference is possible. But for the audience, I want the audience to understand that it appears that no matter how much evidence I give of a uterine brother, a sibling according to the same blood, your response would be that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about adoptive brothers and sisters. Is that is that so? Yes, and the reason, and I will discuss that in my, uh, you know, concluding statement, is that there's just so much more that indicates that Mary would have remained a virgin. So here, I would agree with you that Psalm 69 may be relevant, and I do not say that it was, you know, a dogma, but I think that the Psalm is just too... It's just too complex, and, and because John does not apply that verse when he could have and maybe should have, but rather there's a very specific number of uh, verses that you can use, I think it's really um, it's an argument, but not, I think, a very strong one. 
Okay. Where in the Bible, Old Testament or New, are we told that Joseph adopted brothers? Well, that Joseph and okay. Mary adopted sons. No, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe I wasn't clear. Uh, the view is that Joseph was an older man when, uh, with his own children. Uh, then he agreed to marry this uh, young uh, virgin, Mary, and that when, when Jesus was born, uh, Jesus was adopted by Joseph. And therefore, um, uh, Jesus was the adoptive son of Joseph, and the biological sons of Joseph by previous marriage were really the Adelphoi, the brothers of Jesus in that sense. How many, how many were there? How many were there? How many other, how many sons did he have that he brought into the marriage with Mary? Several sons, of which some are, are, are known. Um, obviously, James is, is well known. And in fact, uh, there's, I know you don't like tradition, but you know, um, if one goes to say to Bethlehem. I, I, just want, I, yeah. I just want to kind of clarify this. Joseph was an older man who brought sons with him into the marriage. Can you name them for me, these sons? I can name some that, that are known from the records. James. The brother of the Lord, yes. for example, uh, Salome yes. is a is a daughter. Um, yes. There's um, um, possibly, of course, um, uh, Simon, though it's unclear. He's named in Mark. There's those that are named in Mark um, uh, six three, and those would be the um, Adelphoi of Jesus through this adoptive family, as well as possibly um, uh, cousins from Clopas. I think Adelphoi uh, works uh, for for both of these um, these relationships. Do you think that the word Adelphos in the New Testament is used for cousin? I don't think so. I think that it's possible. Obviously, my argument, which is the, the Eastern view, is that these are adoptive siblings, not cousins. Okay. However, I would have to okay. say that it's possible that um, if uh, indeed Joseph and Mary were co-opted by Clopas and Clopas had sons, uh, that those would then form a single household of sorts, and that those would properly be called, uh, uh, in, a, in a Jewish sense, um, uh, Adelphoi. I think it's possible. Um, in the Septuagint... Do we have any biblical evidence for any of this? Any biblical evidence for well, Joseph being an older man with sons who married Mary? Do we have well, any biblical evidence for well, that? Well, yes, yes. Um, I, I argued that uh, there's a typology between um, uh, Joseph of Egypt and also David and, and Joseph... Uh, the, the spouse of, uh, of Mary, that uh, we, it's, it's clear that he had died, everybody agrees, uh, before Jesus began his ministry, that therefore the most biblically, uh, you could say, coherent age for Joseph dying would not be 55, which is not a, a blessed life, but rather, you know, 70 or 80 or more, and therefore this is consistent with Joseph being an older man, maybe 55 or more, when he took Mary as a wife. It's, it's a consistent picture, and, and the early church would, taught that picture. Would it be consistent that Joseph did not bring any children into the marriage, that he did, in fact, marry Mary, that he did, in fact, keep her a virgin until the death, uh, until the birth of Jesus, and that Mary and Joseph did, in fact, have then the consummation of the marriage and had sex and had other children. Wouldn't that be consistent as well? 
it would be consistent, uh, Rob, if all we had to go by was, um, you know, uh, just a few things. I think that there's a bigger picture that emerges when you have uh, the the typology of Mary as the Ark, as the New Eve. When you have, you think about the age of, of James and Joseph. You look at the at the early church. Um, um, stories, you could say, you call them stories, you know, that were accepted by the early Christians, uh, the gospel according to Peter, the foretelling okay, of James. So now, now, yeah. now, now we're, going, we're going outside of the Bible now. We're going into the gospel of Peter. We're going into uh, sources outside. You say things like the stories that were told, the tradition that was held, mm-hmm. the bigger picture. But in reality, the simple, straightforward story given to us in Matthew and in Luke is that Joseph married Mary and kept her a virgin until Jesus was born, then consummated the marriage by having sex with his wife, and other children were born, and they are called brothers and sisters of Jesus. I don't see how anything can be more consistent than that. And would you agree that that's the only story we have in the Bible? You haven't told me anywhere in Scripture where Joseph was an older man, where Joseph was previously married, where Joseph brought other sons into the marriage, nor is there any mention of Joseph and Mary adopting any of Mary of Clopas' children at all. So isn't this all just speculation? I mean, if I were to hold you to the text of Scripture, would you be able to put this together? I don't think so. What do you think? Well, I think that I've argued the vow forcefully. Uh, I've argued uh, that uh, the end point, that the the focus of Matthew is only that Joseph was not biologically the cause of Jesus being born. So then we've discussed, you know, the the, the at the cross, the entrusting of uh, of Mary to John. I've briefly mentioned you'd never uh, discussed that. You know, Zechariah twelve, talking about the the piercing of the Messiah, mourning an only son. A firstborn son. So those things, there's a biblical picture that's vast uh, that we need to look at to really rightly understand uh, the scriptures like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli did with the same text. And certainly Origen and Chrysostom, these Greek speakers, that's what they read in the text. And that was their plain reading. Well, they they had uh, their interpretation of the text, certainly, and it is to be read and uh, respected, but it doesn't mean that they had the final word on the text. So, uh, we wouldn't agree at all. I'm sure you wouldn't agree at all with uh, John Calvin in most things, or Martin Luther in most things, especially their view of Scripture. But let me ask you this question. Is Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke in the Book of Acts, is he familiar with Greek terms that would normally be used to describe classes of people distinct from biological siblings. Is he yes. familiar with yes. words sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I would agree Mr. with that. Would, yeah. would he not use these terms if he wanted to convey that kind of relationship? I mean, if I wanted to say that somebody was Jesus' brother, I would say he was Jesus' brother. If I wanted to say he was Jesus' friend, I would say he was Jesus' friend. If I wanted to say he was his cousin, I would say he was cousin, or his near relative, or his neighbor. The New Testament writers had access to these terms. Why, then, do you want to say that Adelphos means friend or means relative or means cousin when in the context he's referring to a brother 
in some kind of uterine relationship or a brother in some kind of familiar Right. Sure. Now, l- let's keep in mind that in the New Testament, Adelphos, Adelphoi, uh, mostly means uh, spiritually adoptive siblings, right? Adoptive through God the Father in the church. That's the, that's the, the most common use. The family use spiritual, is, is, is a small brothers use. And sisters. All right? Spiritual brothers and sisters. Right. It is one use, yes. But it's clarified as that use. But, yes, by adoption. Uh-huh. By adoption. So my point is that in the in the Old Testament Greek, adelphoi cannot mean never means uterine, uh, uterine half siblings. It just doesn't mean that. Uh, you're you're saying it means that, but there's no no background. I'm saying is that the the uh, the common use for adelphoi is either adoptive, as we've seen in spiritual sense, or it is the same father biological or adoptive father. And so we're just applying the, the, the right term, which is why the, the Greek-speaking uh, fathers were never bothered by the term Adelphoi. It was the right term to describe who these people are to Jesus. That's the right language biblically. And in Greek... No, it is not, it is not the right language biblically because the, the predominant use of Adelphos in the New Testament when it's not used figuratively or metaphorically of spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters is amazingly consistent. But it's, yeah, but, but, yeah, but it's not the meaning that you... that you. It means, in most cases, full, full siblings, same father, same mother, but it's not the meaning you want to give anyways to, to Adelphoi when it's used for, for the Lord's uh, Adelphoi. So... That's not, uh, I think, a good argument. Uh, you know, we. I think it is, a good, it is a good argument in the sense that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. It, he is the legal father, and in that sense, you can say that Joseph adopted Jesus in that sense legally. But he certainly is the biological son of Mary, and there's nothing to prevent us from seeing the brothers and sisters of Jesus also being the biological offspring of Mary and Joseph as well. Jesus would be the only exception to that. The only exception. Okay, I, I'm sorry. the rest of the New Testament. Alright, I, I have to interrupt. The 15 minutes is over about 30 seconds ago. Um, but at this point, if uh, everybody's ready to move on, we'll move into our second round of 10-minute rebuttals, beginning with Laurent. And, and uh, if, you, um, if you're ready to go, I'll start your timer when you begin speaking. Okay. In my closing rebuttal, um, I would like to uh, just recap some a few points and uh, maybe just uh, clarify some things. Now, we have to read the scriptures, especially the Greek uh, New Testament, with the mind of the scripture. And I think this happens in the church, which is the place of the spirit, and as St. Paul says, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And I think only in in that context can we really make sense of the totality of the scriptures. Among the arguments that I have mentioned, um, I will recap them and simply brief 16 arguments. Uh, Most of them were quite covered. One, Jesus is called the son of Mary, Mark 6.3. It's a metronymic uh, in the Old Testament, when someone is referred to as son of a woman, it is to distinguish that person from those born 
from a different mother. So very consistent here. Two, um, I have argued that the ancient Greek-speaking uh, fathers and leaders of the church, the bishops, to whom we owe the preservation and discerning of the of the scriptures themselves, were uh, on the orthodox side uh, here, or on the Catholic side to an extent. They believed that Mary was ever virgin, and uh, I think that uh, the reader should really look at. Uh, the, the, the listener should look at uh, all these names and uh, maybe refer to my book for a, a close review of these, these people. Three, I've argued that uh, Adelphoi to mean the, the adoptive uh, siblings through Joseph is very consistent with the biblical usage, both the Old Testament and New Testament. Four, I've argued that the age of Joseph, which I think can be inferred and should be discussed, there's of course traditions about that, um, that it's consistent with the ancient story uh, from the um, first, maybe second century, that he was in fact a widower with uh, children of his own, most of them grown up. It seems that James was about, uh, about 15 to 18 years older than Jesus. Six, uh, there's the age of James. We discussed that briefly. How could James be chosen as the chief presbyter uh, being hardly 30 years old? Very unlikely. Uh, the record is, is otherwise. Six, there is, I believe, a clear indication that Mary was a virgin who had taken a vow. And I would like to make reference here to, um, in fact, Robert mentioned 1 Corinthians 7. In verse uh, 28, St. Paul talks about uh, those who are um, betrothed to a virgin, and yet, you know, he says, well, um, you know, if you do end up marrying, you do not sin. It seems clear to me uh, that the best way to understand this text is that there was a practice in the early church to be betrothed to a virgin and yet to not consummate the union on the pattern, it seems, of Mary and Joseph, but others, possibly James, possibly even the apostles who had a sister wife, to use the proper Greek term, um, and that Paul says, look, you know, this is a nice ideal, but it's not something you have to do, uh, yet there's no sin in, in, in fact, getting married and um, consummating the union. But I think it makes sense that there is a pattern there that some people were, in fact, observing. Uh, point number seven, uh, I think Luke chapter one presents Mary as the antitype, the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant, if one compares with uh, 1 Samuel 6 and 7. And just as a man could not touch the Ark and live, uh, likewise, Joseph did not touch the fulfillment of the Ark. Uh, eight, there's a typology also between Mary and the gate facing east. I go through all the verses in, in my book. Um, it ends with Ezekiel 44, which talks about this image of, of this uh, sealed gate. The Lord had entered through it, and nobody uh, would enter afterwards. There is the uh, image coming from Irenaeus, uh, who was a disciple of Polycarp and a who was a disciple of John, so Arrhenius was linked to, to John and Mary by, this, by this, uh, this connection here, Polycarp, who presents Mary as the new Eve, and he says just as Eve was meant to be the mother of the living, but in fact sinned and 
ceased being a virgin and gave birth to the dying. By contrast, uh, Mary, by her, by her obedience, became the mother of the living one, Jesus. And I would, it doesn't say that, but I would say that the, the, the symmetry says and did not cease being a virgin, unlike Eve. It also means that once Mary gave birth to the living one, Jesus Christ, she would not have wanted to give birth to those who may be dying ones, other, other um, children that were not like Jesus, the true living one. That there was this unique aspect in this birth. Yes, Jesus is the exception. It is a unique family unit. There is the uh, typology between Joseph as the fulfillment of Joseph of Egypt and David. You may recall that David, in his uh, older days, uh, had a, a young virgin who took care of him, and he did not know her, it is said. And uh, then he died around 70 years old. Likewise, Joseph of Egypt was known for his sexual continence and, and restraint as a young man. Eleven, the interesting at the cross only makes sense if Mary was a, a, a widow losing her only son. Point number 12, there is this mourning of an only son, uh, which is announced in Zechariah 12. It's very meaningful for us, uh, Orthodox and, and Catholic Christians, that Mary is being pierced, according to the prophecy, seeing her only beloved son uh, being slain. We also see that virginity is important in the Bible. I know it's not popular these days, but Revelation 14.4 uh, talks about those who are virgins. Uh, there's Jesus, lifelong virgin. There is John the Baptist, lifelong virgin. There is John the Apostle, we think from tradition, lifelong virgin, and Mary, lifelong virgin. 14, we've discussed 1 Corinthians 7.28. 15, I asked at some point, where are these other children mentioned, for example, um, after Egypt or uh, when Jesus is 12 years old? And then there is a theory of St. Jerome, which has to be uh, looked at carefully, that, uh, that uh, James and Joseph, if they are the same people named again in the Gospel of Mark, are in fact sons of Clopas, and... Um, the Bible doesn't say so, but Jesippus says that Clopas was, in fact, the brother of, of, jo of Joseph, and that makes them cousins. So uh, there's a lot of um, reasons to stick uh, to, to the ancient view that was received uh, by the ancient fathers for whom we have obtained, in fact, the scriptures and the canon. So all these points uh, should uh, make us very cautious uh, to, to, to say very glibly, yes, you know, uh, there's these, these kids that were born after Jesus, and they had to measure up to Jesus who was perfect. It was very hard for them. You know, the more we hear these kinds of stories, uh, the less credible, plausible, and biblical they sound. Uh, instead, there's, there's a very vast um, uh, picture that emerges. And so I will uh, hope that this discussion will uh, prompt um, uh, all of us to contemplate the life of Joseph, James, and Mary with new eyes, and the scriptures with new eyes. And I end with uh, Ezekiel uh, 44. And the men brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. Lord said to me, the gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. So let those who have ears hear what the Spirit say, is saying to the churches today. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Laurent. And uh, now, Robert, I'll hand the proverbial microphone once again over to you for your 10-minute second rebuttal. Okay, thank you. I want to go back to the 
the speculation of the position of my opponent this afternoon. There is no evidence that Joseph was an older man and that he had other children and he brought those children into the marriage anticipated with Mary. There is no biblical evidence that in due time, Joseph and Mary adopted other children, and that when the New Testament says that the brothers of Jesus were present in the narrative, that these brothers or these sisters were adopted brothers and sisters. And this kind of speculation should make anybody listening very nervous about gaining truth from the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not silent on the birth narrative of Jesus. They're not silent on the subsequent ministry of Jesus Christ. We don't know much about Jesus from the age of 12 until the age of his public ministry. There are years and years of silence. We can't fill those silence times with speculations. And this is exactly what my opponent has done this afternoon. He would have us believe that, for instance, because there are no children mentioned as coming out of Egypt with Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, there must not have been any other children at any other time. He would have us believe that since this period of silence between the age of 12 and the time of Jesus' public ministry, there must have been the death of Joseph, there must have been the adoption of other children. But all this, of course, is speculation. None of it is mentioned in Scripture. Now, I have argued that Mary did not make a vow of virginity. It's not in the text. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I am a virgin. What was the announcement that Mary was responding to? The announcement, the announcement that Mary was responding to was, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. We are certain that this announcement was very startling to Mary, as evidenced by her response, especially when the nature of the son that she was carrying in her womb was described as son of the Most High, Lord God, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. Mary says to this announcement, how can this be since I'm a virgin? How can I possibly give birth to a child right now? I'm a virgin. I haven't had sex with anybody. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how you will become pregnant. So her response is not a vow of virginity at all. I have also argued that Matthew 25 states clearly that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. I have argued that the construction there, the Greek construction, who, is altogether different than the construction without the heos. If it was just one word, 
in the Greek text, if it was just uh, a word without the other particle, then perhaps my opponent would have some solid ground to stand on. But the problem with his argument is that this is a particular construction that's used throughout the New Testament and never, ever does the action of the first clause continue after this transition of until into the second clause. So a fair reading of it would be, and kept her aversion until she gave birth to a son, and after that, the action changes. This is the case throughout the New Testament. I also argued that Matthew informs us through Joseph and Mary that though they were betrothed, they had not yet come together. What does come together mean, other than to have a consummation of sexual relations in the marriage? That's the main point of Matthew focusing on the virgin birth of Jesus, is to make sure his audience understands it's before they came together. Not came together in betrothal period, not came together in marriage, not came together with a perpetual vow of virginity by both of them, but came together in the sense of having normal sexual relationships. And I have argued extensively that Jesus did have literal biological brothers and sisters based upon the normal use of the word Adelphos for brother and Adelphos for sister in the New Testament. While he was still speaking to the multitudes below, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside. There is never a use of the word Adelphos, brother, for cousins. His brothers were standing outside. Now, my opponent rests his entire argument on the speculation that these brothers are adopted brothers, that they're not biological brothers. The reason he has to do this is because brothers is used throughout the New Testament of biological siblings. And in order for him to get around this, he wants you to believe that these are adopted brothers. Who are they? Well, some were Joseph from his first marriage as an older man. Others perhaps were adopted from Mary of Clopas, so forth and so on. We don't know uh, who the others were, but we're sure that they were adopted. So the plain sense of the text is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. Are they not all with us? These are all adopted kids. That's his position, although the New Testament doesn't tell us that, and certainly could have told us that if that were the truth, because these kinds of distinctions and relationships were available to the writers. I've also argued that the Apostle Paul, who has no bone to pick with anyone, says simply and straightforwardly, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the Apostles and the brothers of the Lord? Was he talking about adopted brothers from Joseph, an older man bringing other sons into the marriage? I don't think so. Galatians 1, 18 and 19 then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, stayed with him 15 days, but did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. But wait a minute. My opponent says this cannot be a pillar of the Church of Jerusalem. He, by speculation, would have been too young. He, by speculation, could have not assumed this kind of authority. But yet the straightforward text says, I did not see any of the other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And, of course, the 
the text goes on, even into the Acts of the Apostles, as Luke writes, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. It's a straightforward text by Luke, who could have used half-brothers, he could have used cousins, he could have used near relatives. He uses all these terms in his writings, but here, as we see, it is use of his own, uh, his the common use of Adelphos being siblings. Now there there is this question of whether or not there's a transference here in Mark 3, 31 through 35. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around them, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. The impact of this statement is absolutely neutralized if his biological mother and his biological brothers were not standing outside of the door. Jesus was making a profound point, the same point that I argued at the cross, that those who were his biological brothers were not as significant and wouldn't be as significant to him as his spiritual brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. If his mother never believed, if his brothers never became Christians, then these who would do the will of his Father in heaven would be his brother, his sister, and his mother. That's the impact of the statement. Hence, I would argue that the straightforward use of the text is that Jesus had biological brothers and sisters by use of the language by historical report, which I'll mention in my closing statements, and that the entire case of Mary being a perpetual virgin was, is and continues to be based upon speculation of Joseph, speculation of adoption, and speculation of the age of Jane, so forth and so on. It is a stretch beyond the imagination, even of Roman Catholic scholars who have written extensively on this very issue and have concluded in many cases that there just isn't any good historical proof and definitely no biblical proof of the contention that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And I'll leave it at that point. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Robert. And it is at this point that we'll turn to each of you for your closing arguments. And just by way of reminder, not that there's any risk of uh, you guys not knowing this already, but closing statements are not an opportunity to raise new argumentation uh, to which your opponent will not have the opportunity to, to respond. So just keep that in mind. And with that, Laurent, if you're ready to go, when you begin speaking, I'll start your five-minute timer. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, to uh, uh, to Rob for for this exchange. Uh, very useful. Um, let me just um, conclude by uh, giving uh, the, the bigger picture. So we have three competing theories as to who these Adelphoi uh, could be. The the more ancient um, attested view, the one that has uh, those ancient documents that are, of course, post-biblical, but very old, is the Epiphanian view, uh, the Greek Orthodox view, to use that term, that I um, t today presented. Um, and um, there is, of course, evidence. Um, there's the fact that um, 
origin bears witness to these very ancient documents which we have, uh, such as the um, Infancy Gospel of Thomas, the uh, Infancy Gospel of James from the second century that uh, give a very detailed story and that was accepted as being uh, valid by most of the early Christians. So, yes, if, if we are really stuck to just the, the biblical text and we refuse any data or evidence from history, from, uh, from witnesses, then uh, it's, it can be more constraining. Uh, happily, if you go today to, to Bethlehem, for example, you can ask to see the cave where the Lord uh, was born. It's obviously an Orthodox church since we've been there since, since Pentecost, same at uh, the, the Holy Sepulchre. You can ask people the stories. Um, do we know that the Lord was born in a cave? Is it in the Bible? No, it's not. But there's good ancient evidence that this is in fact what, what took place. Is it dogma? No. But is it credible? Uh, yes. Now, uh, the, the evidence uh, I have brought forward is, is vast. It's based on, on reading of the prophets, on typology, on really thinking about, about the text, uh, about the use of the text. Uh, what is Adelphoi in the Old Testament? Can it mean uterine uh, siblings, yes or no? How was Matthew using Adelphoi uh, in, in his you know, initial instances, uh, verse 2 and verse 11? We've discussed that. It's uh, about what did the the Greek-speaking uh, early Christians understand from 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 these Greek constructions, um, such as Ma- uh, Matthew one one twenty five. Now, I I completely agree with uh, Robert, by the way, that uh, Matthew one eighteen is before they came together. Again, it's before they had intercourse. Uh, she was found to be pregnant. The entire point of Matthew is to fulfill, to show how Isaiah seven is is being fulfilled. So, the the view that was the ancient view that has been received uh, uh, in the uh, Greek speaking churches to this very day uh, is based on on Tota Scriptura, and it's based on these these ancient records. Um, Eusebius, we know, had access to very ancient records uh, that are now lost from from Papias and Eusebius and uh, from uh, Jesippus, people like that. And Eusebius teaches that view. That's in his history of the church. For him, that's an historical fact. Uh, it's it's what's, what has been received. And again, if we're going to trust these people to have preserved, kept, um, uh, copied, discerned the New Testament canon, why can't we trust them to understand the family context uh, of Jesus? Which makes a lot more sense theologically if Mary is indeed the new Ark and the new Eve, if really there is this, this uniqueness about Jesus and this family unit. We Orthodox are very comfortable with these people being called Adelphoi. And there's a unique sense to that. You see, um, Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus, so that Jesus may really be the, the claimant, the heir to the throne of David. That is very important in the Bible. Jesus is the great Solomon. Right? Now, Solomon was not David's firstborn, was he? He was actually, I think, six or seven in line. Likewise, uh, likewise, Jesus is not the firstborn of Joseph in any shape or form. Uh, he is born after several children. But just as the sons of David accepted uh, Solomon as their king and gave allegiance, likewise, 
most of these Adelphoi, maybe all of them, recognized uh, this, this younger Jesus uh, as, in fact, the true Solomon, the true king, pledged allegiance to, to Jesus as, as the true king, and were honored for that. They were known in the early church as the, the Lord's brothers, and there was a term for them called the, the Desposinoi, the, um, the relatives of the Lord. And so we have a beautiful picture from tradition and scripture, and I hope that our listeners will want to perhaps read my book, even on the topic, Ayi Parthenos, Ever Virgin, and that they will have an open mind, keeping in, in mind that John P. Mayer uh, writes that certainly one can with integrity, that is intellectual integrity, uh, hold to this Epiphanian view. Thank you so much for this debate, uh, Chris and Rob. Okay, and thank you, Laurent and Robert. When you're ready to begin, I'll start your five-minute timer. Okay, thank you. And uh, it has been a pleasure to be a part of this discussion, and I appreciate the the kindness and the authentic um, spirit of uh, my fellow uh, debater this afternoon in having this discussion. I want uh, you to know that I appreciate being invited even to have an opportunity to speak on this issue. Uh, my opponent holds the Epiphanian view, and I would encourage the readers of uh, the New Testament as well as history and books of this matter to consult uh, a book that I've already mentioned, a book uh, by Eric B. Spenson entitled Who is My Mother? On page uh, 89 and following, uh, Spenson devotes a great deal of time and effort in discussing the Epiphanian view if you want to... Uh, read a little bit more as to why this is the least attractive view and is held only by the Eastern Orthodox Church. And today, the Roman Catholic theologians have rejected this view, uh, as well as Protestant scholars. Now, I have argued uh, throughout this uh, discussion that the word Adelphos, as used in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, not the Septuagint, not classical Greek, but in the New Testament, that it references either full or half-brothers when designating some sort of physical or legal relationship. It never means step-brother, cousin, or nephew. And, of course, uh, uh, when we go to antiquity and we begin to try to discern what the Church Fathers had to say about this very issue, sometimes it's difficult to, to find out their exact position. But we do have bits and pieces from church history. The uh, church history is normally divided by scholars in two periods, the, the pre-Council of Nicaea period, or pre-Nicene period, and the post-Nicene period. And the Council of Nicaea is 325 AD, so anything prior to that is considered to be closer to the source. And, and uh, I had mentioned that in the Jewish Antiquities of Josephus, he speaks of James as the brother of Jesus. And Joseph uh, was a Greek-speaking, Josephus was a Greek-speaking Jew who knew the distinction between brother and cousin and half-brother and adopted brother and near relative. So if he had wanted to designate James as the adopted brother of the Lord through Joseph in a previous marriage, I think he would have made note of that as an ecclesiastical historian. Tertullian, I mentioned, in writing against Marcion, did appeal to Mark 3, 31-35, and he commented that in that 
particular portion of Scripture that Jesus transfers the names of blood relationships to others whom he judged to be more closely related to him by reason of their faith. When Tertullian says that Jesus transferred the names of blood relationships, that tells us that Tertullian understood that those outside the door were Jesus' blood relationships. And it's a quote from Tertullian in virtue of his argument against Marcion in proof that Jesus did have brothers and sisters, human brothers and sisters, against Marcion and others of that time who were arguing that Jesus was not fully man. One of the arguments that Tertullian used was that Jesus transferred the names of blood relationships to others whom he judged to be more closely related to him by reason of their faith. I mentioned that Irenaeus uh, had an interesting parallel in the creation of Adam and the creation of Jesus, and I would, I would direct your attention to that citation in Spenson's book on page 101 for those of you who would like to read it. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, parallel because in this portion of Irenaeus, he says, as the protoplast himself, Adam, had his substance from untilled and as yet virgin soil, so Jesus came from Mary, who was as yet a virgin. Same construction. And, of course, we know that the soil of the earth did not stay virgin after the creation of Adam. It was tilled and so forth. And and we know, of course, that Mary, her soil, in comparison, in parallel, did not remain a virgin after the birth of Jesus. She had other children. And it's interesting that Irenaeus would write this. This is all pre-Nicaea. Everything that we've heard this afternoon has been post-Nicaea, after Council of Nicaea. I said that for those who worry that Jesus' brothers are so often referred to as his brothers, rather than sons of Mary, we should all heed the advice of Roman Catholic scholars who say rightly all relationships are defined from the vantage point of Jesus and not Mary. So these brothers would be called Jesus' brothers, not from the vantage point of Mary as Mary's sons. There is no pre-Nicene witness to Jesus' brothers being anything but uterine siblings. That's a fact. There's nothing prior to the Council of Nicaea that referred to Jesus' brothers as being anything other than uterine siblings. Finally, I have and would argue that there can be no appeal to the Old Testament Greek in these matters. I know my opponent likes to go back to the Old Testament and talk about the use of Adelphos and Adelphi and, and the Hebrew terminology, but could we not remember that the the Old Testament uh, Greek used to translate the Alexex, the Septuagint, is translation Greek. These writers are trying to take Hebrew words and put them into Greek, and oftentimes they had no choice but to use the word Adelphos to refer to someone's cousin or someone's near relative because there is no specific Hebrew word for cousin or near relative. Hawk was used for virtually all those relationships. But when we come to the New Testament, it's altogether different. Adelphos and Adelphe are brother and sister, uterine, blood brothers, constantly and consistently through the testimony 
of the New Testament. And with that, I thank you and close. All right. Thank you, Robert. Well, I really appreciate um, both of you taking the time to uh, engage in this debate on my podcast for me. Uh, I'd like to give you each a brief opportunity to tell my listeners where they can find your websites or your books. Um, Starting with you, Laurent, do you want to one more time tell my listeners what the name of your book is and how they can best go about getting their hands on it? Uh, yes, uh, in preparing for this debate, I ended up writing a book about it because it's just a lot of research. And the book is available on Kindle, and it's called Ai Parthenos Ever Virgin? Question mark Understanding the Orthodox Catholic Doctrine of the Perpetual Virginity of Mary, the Mother of Jesus, and the Identity of James and the Brothers and Sisters of the Lord. So it's a long, long subtitle there. <laughs> um, and um, maybe you can put a link, or they can visit uh, my parish, uh, Eureka firstchurch.com and uh, find it uh, there and I have a, a website called cleanworkmylastname.org uh, where I put academic papers and there will be a link to the book as well. Alright, I'll make sure to include links to those in the show notes for this episode and, and Robert, you as well, if you've got if you'd like to give the uh, URL to your website and, and any resources that you think our listeners might find helpful, uh, why don't you share those with us? Okay, you can find me at C wrc-rz.org that's c as in cat w r c as in cat dash rz.org if you go to that website you have an extensive website uh, full of articles on various topics pertaining to an apologetic toward the roman catholic religion the name of my ministry is A Christian Witness to Roman Catholicism, and you'll also be able to uh, take a look at uh, my first book, Romanism, The Relentless Roman Catholic Assault on the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and my second book, On the Edge of Apostasy, The Evangelical Romance with Rome. Those and a number of other books are uh, in the, in the uh, book category under materials available, and uh, also Romanism, is available on Kindle, and Edge of Apostasy is available on Kindle as well. Just type in my name, Robert M. Zins, Z-I-N-S, and you'll be able to pull it up on Kindle or the title Romanism or On the Edge of Apostasy. So these uh, are available. We send out materials all over the world helping people to understand the difference between the Roman Catholic religion and biblical Christianity, and this debate just sort of falls right into that category I should say that the Roman Catholic position is not the same as the Eastern Orthodox position, so I suppose you could have a debate between a Roman Catholic (laughs) and uh, an Eastern Orthodox uh, representative on why both think that uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin and uh, we are at a disadvantage. We have to debate one, and then we have to debate the other, (laughs) because we don't believe the position is correct. So... At any rate, that's the website, cwrc-rz.org. Okay. You want to find me. And like I said, I'll include links to that as well in the show notes. And and yeah, Laurent, maybe we'll have to have you on with a Catholic to go toe-to-toe on the virginity of Mary. Um, but uh, anyway, hey, listen, guys, I've really appreciated your time, and, and I hope that you guys felt as though uh, as though I was fair and, and objective, and, and I hope you guys enjoyed your time today. It was great. I thought it was a good exchange. So I, I'm very grateful for the tone as well. I thought it was uh, it was not uh, a dogfight, which I think was important. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> All right. But, uh, okay. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You did a great job, Chris. And, we'll we'll uh, have to, to we'll see in heaven uh, who was right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Okay. Have, have, a, have a blessed day. Okay. Talk to you soon. God bless you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the debate as much as I did. Why don't you shoot me a line and let me know what you thought of it at chris at theapologetics.com or find me on Facebook. Uh, And I hope that you'll catch me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...